Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to the seventh installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, we're going to continue discussing Article 1, Section 4 of the Michigan Constitution. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article's section, We'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post the podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Article 1, Section 4. Every person shall be at liberty to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience. No person shall be compelled to attend or, against his consent, to contribute to the erection or support of any place of religious worship or to pay tithes, taxes, or other rates for the support of any minister of the gospel or teacher of religion. No money shall be appropriated or drawn from the treasury for the benefit of any religious sect or society, theological or religious seminary, nor shall property belonging to the state be appropriated for any such purpose. The civil and political rights, privileges, and capacities of no person shall be diminished or enlarged on account of his religious belief. Okay, so last time we addressed the concept of free exercise generally, but let's start looking at how it plays out in other situations. Doing so, we first look at the case of Americans United for Separation of Church and State versus Kent County. This is a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1980 with the following fact pattern. Kent County, which sits on the west side of the state and holds Michigan's second-largest city, Grand Rapids, entered into a labor management agreement with different unions that represent city employees. The contracts provided employees with a half-day of vacation with pay on Good Friday and for the county buildings to be closed at noon so that employees can attend religious services. The Americans United for Separation of Church and State filed this lawsuit. The Michigan Court of Appeals found that the decision to make Good Friday a partial holiday was the result of privately conducted negotiations authorized under a Michigan statute encouraging collective bargaining. 
More so, they rule that holidays and holiday pay is one of the mandatory subjects of bargaining. The court said that during negotiations, the parties first agreed upon the number of holidays which would be included in the collective bargaining contract and then proceeded to negotiate which holidays would be selected. Therefore, if Good Friday had not been selected as a half-day holiday, then a different half-day holiday would have been selected in its place. The Court of Appeals also noted the selection of Good Friday in the collective bargaining agreement did not increase the cost of the taxpayers or decrease the hours that the county facilities would be closed because these hours would have been shut down for a different day or for a different reason. As a personal note, I liken the situation that this day was going to be issued as a half day the same way teachers get in service. They know that there's going to be a day where they don't actually have to teach, that they'll essentially be given a quote-unquote free day. Finally, the Court of Appeals noted that there was nothing in the agreement that required or even encouraged employee attendance at the Good Friday Church service. They believed this day off was provided as a non-religious purpose to the extent that the Easter weekend was upon us. As such, the court found there was nothing which compelled a person to attend religious services or force one to pay taxes for the support of any minister, religious sect, or society, as claimed by the plaintiff. For those reasons, the plaintiff did not successfully keep the Kent County Group from allocating a half day on Good Friday because it was not a violation of Article 1, Section 4. Now we're going to move into ecclesiastical questions and when can a court get involved in the inner workings of a church? In the 1982 case of Benison v. Sharp, the Michigan Court of Appeals had to tackle the issue on how to handle a church property dispute when a majority of members of an Episcopal church voted to secede and create a Catholic church. St. Paul's Episcopal Church is an ecclesiastical corporation in Grand Rapids which owned a church, parish house, and rectory. But let me back up here by about 230 years. In 1789, the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America, herein referred to as PEC USA, was formed as an outcome of secession of the Anglican Church in the colonies from the Church of England. PEC USA is governed by a general convention and a bishop. In 1979, three years before this case was heard by the Michigan Court of Appeals, the PEC USA General Convention amended its canons to institute various doctrinal changes within the church, but a majority of members of St. Paul's Episcopal Church were opposed to these changes. So, at a meeting of the membership of St. Paul's, a majority present voted to delete all provisions from the parish bylaws which referenced the Episcopal Church and stopped all communication between the parish and its diocese. A month later, at the call of the bishop, the minority members held an annual parish meeting and elected Plaintiff Benison as the vestryman and warden of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. But four months later, Defendant Sharp and his seceding majority adopted a resolution to disaffiliate from the Episcopal Diocese of Western Michigan and to affiliate with the Anglican Catholic Church. 
a new ecclesiastical corporation was formed by the majority and founded the name St. Paul's Anglican Catholic Church of Grand Rapids. Oh, and one last thing they did under the title of membership of the Episcopal Church. They executed deeds conveying the church and all its real property over to the new Catholic Church they formed. The outgoing Mr. Sharp was sued in court for the actions of transferring ownership of the property from the Episcopal Church to the newly formed Catholic Church. But Mr. Sharp's contention was the court system was unconstitutionally interfering in ecclesiastical manners, which is something courts don't have authority to do. The Michigan Court of Appeals starts off by explaining that Article 1, Section 4 of the Michigan Constitution protects freedom of religion by prohibiting governmental establishment of religion and by prohibiting governmental interference with the free exercise of religion. They reiterate the United States Supreme Court belief that the state has an obvious and legitimate interest in the peaceful resolution of property disputes and in providing a civil forum where the ownership of church property can be determined. Likewise, they point out the First Amendment of the United States Constitution severely restricts the role that civil courts may play in resolving church property disputes on the basis of religious doctrine or practice, but instead requiring that courts defer to resolution of issues of religious doctrine by the highest court of the hierarchical church organization. So, based upon a United States Supreme Court, the Michigan Court of Appeals said a state may adopt any one of the various approaches for settling church property disputes so long as it involves no consideration of doctrinal matters. The two ways the Supreme Court of the United States have approved civil court review is either through review of the hierarchical theory or the neutral principle of law theory. And, spoiler alert, the Michigan Court of Appeals went with the hierarchical theory. But before we can dive into that theory, we need to discuss the three general headings by which SCOTUS classified rights of property held by religious bodies. Number one, property has been deeded to a trust with express terms instructing the teaching, support, or spread of some specific form of religious doctrine. Or number two, Property held by a religious congregation which, by the nature of its organization, is strictly independent of other ecclesiastical association and owes no obligation to any higher church authority. Or, number three, the property held by the congregation is but a subordinate member of some general church organization which has a superior ecclesiastical tribunal with ultimate judiciary power of supreme control over the whole membership of that organization. The Michigan Court of Appeals immediately eliminated option number one from applicability because the property at hand was not deeded to the church by trust. The court then eliminated option number two because this church, that being the Episcopal Church, was found not to be an independent church, but instead is part of the PAC-USA group we discussed moments ago. As such, the court found that option number three, a church with a hierarchical system, must be the appropriate heading by which to classify our property at issue. The court here found when a subordinate congregation like St. Paul's secedes from a hierarchical church, it has no right to retain church property where the governing body of the general church has determined it is no longer the congregation for which the property was originally purchased or obtained. 
They look at the member church as under the control and part of a much larger religious organization. The Court of Appeal said whenever the question of discipline or ecclesiastical rule is at issue, the legal tribunals must accept such doctrine as final and binding on the court when such a case is before a judge. Because that is what PAC-USA had decided, and because this church is part of a hierarchical organization, the newly formed Catholic diocese could not take ownership of the property. Another situation dealing with ecclesiastical questions, and it's the Michigan Court of Appeals case Smith v. Calvary Christian Church. This is a pretty salacious case, so pay attention. Plaintiff David Smith sued defendant Mark Byers, the pastor of Calvary Christian Church, alleging that Pastor Mark and his Calvary Christian Church breached an explicit and implicit duty of confidentiality by disclosing personal, sensitive information to the church congregation. That personal and sensitive information? Well, Plaintiff Smith had an extramarital affair with hookers, and Pastor Mark subsequently disclosed these confessions not just to the congregation, but to Mr. Smith's wife, friends, and family. Now, Pastor Mark's philosophy was that he does not believe in confidential communication and that it's the church's doctrine to expose the sinner's sin to the congregation. Plaintiff complained this intentional breach of confidentiality caused him extreme psychological distress requiring treatment as well as physical and mental pain. But the Court of Appeals was unconvinced they had the right to grant plaintiff the relief he sought. They said that the manner in which the pastor and church discipline a church member, based on the religious doctrine the faith relies upon, is a matter of ecclesiastical philosophy. The court even points out the church has a bylaw that reads in part, quote, unscriptural conduct or doctrinal departure from the tenets of faith held by this assembly shall be considered sufficient grounds upon which any person may be disqualified as a member, unquote. And the bylaws even cite a biblical passage which specifically says the congregation should be told of the member's sin if the sinner refused to repent. That's uh, Matthew 18, 15 to 18 for anyone who wants to look it up on their own. So the Court of Appeal judges could not say that the facts in this case either permit or require judicial intervention into defendant's decision to discipline the church's member because this exercise will necessarily involve interpreting religious doctrine. Now, for what it's worth, the judges did say that they did not believe the pastor's announcement constituted a threat to public safety, peace, or order, thus justifying any judicial interference. And if you remember from our previous case in Benison, threats to public safety, peace, and order are the only reasons a court could get involved in internal church procedures. But interestingly enough, the judges did take a favorable, albeit wonky, review of the plaintiff's intentional infliction of emotional distress claim against the pastor. The judges believed there was a genuine issue of material facts regarding whether the plaintiff was a member of the church at the time the pastor told the congregation of Smith's adultery. Mr. Smith alleges he was no longer a member of the church, and because he was not a member of the church, the pastor shouldn't and couldn't discipline him as violating the tenets of the church, because if he's not a member of Calvary Christian Church, the tenets of the church 
couldn't apply to him and therefore he could not have violated those tenets. Maybe said another way, if he's not Jewish, how could his actions ever be in violation of a synagogue? The judges said that if Mr. Smith was a member of the church at the time the pastor informed the congregation of the affair, then the court has no authority to evaluate the actions of the pastor. They would be barred by Article 1, Section 4 and the Free Exercise Clause as this was an action part of a religious activity that does not threaten the public safety, peace, or order. However, if Mr. Smith was not a member of the church when the pastor quote-unquote disciplined him, these justices ruled the church loses its protection over their church activities. So the court sent the case back to the trial court to let a jury weigh the facts of the case, let Mr. Smith convince a panel of his peers whether he was a member, and if not, the jury could determine the liability, if any, the church might have for the pastor's actions. Before I close this case review, I do want to touch briefly on the dissenting opinion by one judge. The judge in his dissent believed that because the bad blood was between the pastor and Mr. Smith, it was completely irrelevant whether Mr. Smith was a member at the time the pastor disciplined him. At the time Mr. Smith told the pastor of his adultery, Mr. Smith was a member of the church. And because interactions between pastor and church member are sacred, the court has no business interfering with that interaction. This judge believed that if church doctrine authorizes a discipline, whatever that discipline might be, Article 1, Section 4 is a shield against court involvement. He argued any other decision would involve the state in determining what is or is not legitimate ecclesiastical disciplinary measures. He would not have allowed a jury to hear the intentional infliction of emotional distress claim. Our last case for this particular podcast is to discuss Great Lakes Society versus Georgetown Charter Township. And it involves an argument about what is a church and do churches have to follow basic zoning laws. The Great Lakes Society is a church in Georgetown Charter Township, a suburb of Grand Rapids. The church sought to build a two-story building which would end up being about 9,700 square feet in size and sit on six acres. Within the two-story 9,700 square foot building, they intended to have a 2,400 square foot sanctuary, a 1,600 square foot ministry counseling area, a 1,500 square foot recording studio, an 1,800 square foot classroom, library, exercise, kitchen space, a 1,200 square foot administrative space, and other assorted spaces for vehicle, child care, and mechanical electrical rooms. For that reason, they were denied the appropriate variances needed to build because the zoning authority didn't deem the building to be a church. They said 2,400 square feet dedicated to a sanctuary, again out of a 9,700 square foot building, included too many things that were essentially not church purpose spaces. So the issue before the Michigan Court of Appeals is, what constitutes building a church? Just a sanctuary where the members sit in pews and hang their coats? Or can there be other church-related activities like classrooms teaching religion, dining space for coffee and donuts, and other assorted engagements? Well, the first topic the judges tackled was, is the proposed building a church? And they determined that yes, it was. They found the evidence presented at trial 
clearly indicated all the uses of public spaces outside of the sanctuary were reasonably and closely related to activities of a church and its congregation. The second topic the Court of Appeals had to review was whether or not a denial of the variance needed by the church was a violation of the church's free exercise right as protected by Article 1, Section 4. See, to comply with the township's zoning requirements, the church needed to be built back from the road no less than 200 feet. This was to ensure, at least according to the township, that there was adequate sight distance for traffic entering and leaving the church site, to provide sufficient spacing between the access point of the church and the adjacent property lines or driveways, along with other logistical matters for its location. The church was only going to have 60 feet of space between it and the road, so the zoning board denied the variance. The church believed that because the zoning board denied its variance request, it prevented them from building their church, and that was an infringement of their free exercise. Not so, said the Court of Appeals. The free exercise clause does not relieve an individual from the obligation to comply with neutral laws of general applicability. A law is neutral if its goal, both on its face and in its implementation, that the street frontage requirement of 200 feet was a valid exercise of a generally applicable act to accommodate competing interests regarding traffic issues. For that reason, they ruled the building, all 9,700 square feet of it, is a church in the eyes of the law, but the variance denial was not an infringement against the church in violation of the Michigan Constitution. That's going to do it for Episode 7 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Please reach out to me at podcast at tonysnyder.com if you'd like to send me an email. Of course, you can also find me. I'm on Twitter at Tony Snyder. We'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit tonysnyder.com, send an email to podcast at tonysnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.